Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the February 5th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swaim. I'm president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist. He's the host of the Capital Record podcast and the author of the book, Full-Time Work in the Meaning of Life. He's also founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. How are you, my friends? I am good. Hey, we're uh, we're done. We have hit our max uh, giveaway on the uh, the wonderful book full time, and uh, that gives us an opportunity to check in with you. How are you doing on the book tr- on the book tour? Uh, well, the book. Uh, I guess this podcast is probably getting posted on Tuesday, February sixth, and mm-hmm. um, Tuesday, February sixth is the actual release date, and so I um, am quite excited for uh, the book tour. I do have a monumental amount of travel and uh, media appearances and things like that, but it's all for a very good cause. Yes. Uh, well, we got an enthusiastic response from the audience. Those books are all uh, now handed out. So thank you for handling that, David. And uh, February 6th, uh, I wonder, did you sync that up because it is Ronald Reagan's birthday? No, not exactly. I knew it was Ron Reagan's birthday, and I knew that it was one of the options of the release dates because generally books uh, street date is a Tuesday. Um, and so once I, uh, my available options, I decided to go with the one that was Ronald Reagan's birthday. Oh, that's lovely. It's also my little brother's birthday. Um, he and I used to joke that he was born on the same day with, with Ronald Reagan, uh, not the same year, of course. But um, now the joke has turned to an honorific. Congratulations being born on the very day that Ronald Reagan would have celebrated his birthday. So he was born uh, February 6th, 1911. This is his 113th, 113th anniversary of his birth. And David, I wanted to talk just a little bit with you about the fact that Ronald Reagan, we, we all know, is a rock-ribbed conservative who, of course, becomes president uh, following the 1980 election. He's uh, inaugurated 1981. And uh, most of us know him from that period. And few Americans recall that he was also the governor of California from 1967 to 1975, um, as I do it in my own brain. It's between two Browns, Pat Brown, uh, Jerry Brown's dad, and then Jerry Brown himself, who succeeds Reagan. And Reagan comes into office just six years uh, after he has served as president of the Screen Actors Guild. He served two terms there. Uh, the most recent one in his case was 59 to 60, 1959 to 60. And I think that that explains to some extent something that has surprised, frustrated some of his fans. And that is that in 68, he signs off on what's called the Myers Milius Brown Act, which grants collective bargaining to just one slice of government workers. That's uh, law enforcement, cops, prison guards, and public safety firefighters as well are in there. And so Reagan figures that uh, he can do this because if he gives collective bargaining rights to the workers, uh, you know, to these public employees, these cops, firefighters and others, that they are, of course, rank and file conservatives. They will give generously as an organization, as a union to Republican causes. Uh, but what's good for the goose is good, good for the gander. And a few years later, of course, Brown comes in, Jerry Brown comes in and he signs the RODA Act, R-O-D-D-A. That's uh, 1976, I want to say, and that extends the same collective bargaining rights to every other government worker. And that sets all of these unions on the campaign trail for a single issue, neither left nor right, but their own self-interest. And that means more money 
better benefits, earlier retirements, less work, no accountability. And we know the story today as it pens out, and that is that police unions, even though they are they comprise really rank and file conservatives, you know, I, I don't think I've ever met a cop, uh, and I've met a bunch, who declared himself a far-left progressive who wanted to defund police. And yet as a group, David, you and I have talked about this on the show, they will, without question, as an organization, as unions, write massive checks to people who are running for public office on a defund police or get soft on crime kind of thing. These are far left people who will give the cops and firefighters what they want, which is higher pay, earlier retirement, better benefits. So they're willing as, as a group to go along with this kind of leftward tilt in California. And I think, you know, it, it's important to remember that Reagan is shot out of the Screen Actors Guild. He has by then already begun thinking about, you know, free market econ economics. He's begun working with General Electric famously and doing a tour around the country, uh, really learning about the virtue of free markets. But, you know, he's only out of that union movement for just a few years before he becomes governor. And I think, you know, speaking as one who has uh, found the light, I'll just say that Six years is not a long distance for a for a, a, a an adult to change his or her philosophical orientation. I think it's pretty unlikely in my experience. I just don't meet a lot of people who it well into adult life suddenly change their their whole philosophy. Although there is that great Winston Churchill quote, right? That if you're not a liberal at twenty, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by forty, you have no head. Um, so, David, uh, talk to me about Ronald Reagan, the man who became good friends, great allies with English Prime Minister, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, John Paul, uh, John Paul I, we may call him, but the original Pope John Paul, uh, Pol Polish solidarity leader Lech Walesa, um, just a, a titan of freedom in the 1980s. Um, yeah, you know, it, I think you're historically accurate to say that this has been a moment um, in in the 60s and in, in Reagan's gubernatorial legacy that bothers a lot of conservatives. I'm not one of them. There's never been a single iota of the story that has been confusing to me. Um, the, the amount of work it takes for me to be comfortable with the fact that um, some people do things at one stage of their life and in one context and in another stage and another context believe differently, is it's not a lot of work. It's not a very big stretch. Um, now, there are certain paradigm shifts that are significant, but remember, this is an era at which those were happening all over the place. Now, Reagan was not a former communist who became a staunch anti-communist, so, th so that doesn't apply in those specifics, but I've never understood why it would be um, believable that somebody would go like Whitaker Chambers from being a commie to an a vehement anti-commie and that um, Reagan having certain things in his gubernatorial record uh, would would be somehow uncomfortably incompatible with with the Reaganism of his presidential legacy. I think that um, there's any number of explanations. For one thing, sometimes people have bad votes. For another, sometimes people have a different rationale um, at one context versus another. And of course, the, the lowest hanging fruit and the Occam's razor of the whole deal is some people just simply grow and evolve. My partner on this podcast being one of them. Now, 
if people are more comfortable with the idea that one could go from Marxist or or liberation theologian to um, conservatism, then they could be comfortable with the fact that Reagan signed um, no-fault divorce laws and that he uh, teed up this issue that provided collective bargaining in public employee unions and see it incompatible with someone who became much more of a supply sider, much more of a, a Buckleyite conservative. Um, as someone who's obviously been very intimately involved with National Review for a long time, I do. What was the year again that uh, Reagan signed this uh, collective bargaining deal? Sixty-seven. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know. Reagan and, and Buckley had a relationship by then, and they were involved together in the Goldwater campaign in 64. Reagan famously gave a speech in 64 uh, that, that is worth watching over and over. But the depth of Bill Buckley and Ronald Reagan's friendship began after that. And I do believe, I, I know uh, with great certainty, that much of the 1980s Reagan was influenced by his relationship with 1970s Bill Buckley. So there's any number of things that could have affected it. But I, um, I, I think that if you look at any of the magnificent people in history, and then you have the advantage of them being dead and gone, and you have decades of things they did, I don't know that you'll find a single one that doesn't have some blemish or a record or a vote. Uh, or something, and and the need to search for explanatory causation isn't a need. I feel. Yeah, I th I think it's you know as I say I think it's noteworthy that by 1981 he enters the White House, and within months I think it's in yeah it's in August that the air traffic controllers famously go out on strike. Now air traffic controllers are part of a federal union. It was called PATCO, I think, the professional, would that be professional air traffic controllers organization or something, I think. They went out on strike uh, in, in early August and on August 3rd, I mean, like within hours, Reagan comes out and he says, you're violating federal law. Part of our collective bargaining agreement with you that you agreed to was you wouldn't go out on strike because you do a critical job. And if you don't return to work within 10 days, you're done. And at least 12,000 air traffic controllers thought they were calling a bluff and stayed home. And he fired them immediately and brought in uh, military air traffic controllers, brought the supervisors for these workers back in. And there was nary a downturn, as I recall, in air traffic. There were, there were no major accidents, no major collisions. And the the echo of that, the the reverberation of that strike led throughout the 1980s to fewer strikes uh, in the U.S. and to you know, real vibrant economic results that sort of speak for themselves. But it's also interesting because my memory of the period, and I didn't go back and check this out for today, but my memory is that Reagan had a lot of fans in the working class. You know, they're famously hard hats marching in you know rallies for him. Despite this, and it you know calls to mind another president who may yet become president again, who has famously worked very hard to get close to private sector unions in particular. I'm talking, of course, about Trump. Um, and sorry for mentioning to you, David, Trump and Reagan in the same breath. But um, but I just think there's something interesting there. Well, yeah, but I do think, though, I, you don't need to be sorry about that. I, I think that there is an important connection. I think that Trump did have a, a message 
that um, connected with the hard hat wearing folks, the lunch pail people of Pittsburgh and the and, and the auto workers of Ohio and Michigan. And I think that that message is almost always um, through a narrative, through through storytelling, through through a vibe. And I don't say that pejoratively. I think it's important that people communicate that they care about it. Now, sometimes someone could say, I think the Democrat Party has gotten away with appealing to certain minorities in an identity politics sense and not really actually had a message for them that I think uh, makes sense I, or, or w w is worthy of their vote. Um, whether or not people believe that Trump deserves the affections of the so-called blue-collar working-class whites in the Rust Belt, um, a Fifth Avenue billionaire who doesn't pay his construction workers, um, you could argue that it's a non-sequitur, but I don't argue with the fact that he connected with them and they like him and they think he talks to them and they didn't think that Obama did. And Biden had a certain advantage there because of that old Scranton Joe bit. I think a lot of that seems to me to have fallen apart with union workers, but held together with union bosses. Mm. And because of my knowledge of math, I think if you have to pick between union workers and union bosses in an election, you'd rather have union workers. Uh, the difference is that there are just some public employee unions are different. SEIU is different. AFL-CIO is different. I think Trump will get the bulk of the workers from AFL-CIO, and I think Biden will get the bulk of public employee workers. And I think that like the Nevada thing in Clark County, it'll be interesting to see if that starts to fall apart a little. But there's very uh, nuanced differentiations between these different categories of union. I don't think, Will, that it's at all surprising that Reagan went after the federal air traffic controller uh, union members and that he still had the affections of so-called Reagan Democrats. I actually think it's a very consistent message because I think a lot of those workers did not see themselves as these coddled federal employees who had a right to break the law and still keep their job. I think they respected what Reagan did to the air traffic controllers. And in hindsight, I wish that more auto workers had believed those of us on the right, that their union bosses did not have their best interest in mind. Well, that's uh, February 6, 1911, Ronald Reagan's birthday. Uh, let's, David, move to staying with Trump here for just a moment. Big news story out. Uh, I'm joking. It's not big, but I just found it fascinating. Here's the headline. Rapper Snoop Dogg has nothing but love and respect for Trump. Uh, he told the Los Angeles, I'm sorry, the London Times, he, Donald Trump, ain't done nothing wrong to me. He has only done great things for me. He pardoned Michael Harris, Michael Harry O. Harris was a former associate of Suge Knight. And David, I defer to your comparatively infinite knowledge of the of the game, um, because, uh, you know, I think Snoop's a talent. Uh, he's, of course, uh, for those who don't know, uh, born and raised in the LBC, uh, Long Beach, uh, particularly North Long Beach, still lives out in Diamond Bar. And he told the, the London Times that um, 
This was a guy who we really respected for pretty much transactional reasons, it seems. He said, I have nothing but love and respect for Donald Trump. And that's a long way from where he was in 2016 when he came out and endorsed Hillary Clinton, called Trump a crazy, reckless MFR, and released a video in which he, which he shot a, um, I don't know if you remember this, David, 2017, I think it comes out, he shoots a Trump impersonator dressed as a clown. Um, so this is a guy who's come some distance in, let's call it, seven or eight years. Yeah, has there been anything negative he said about Trump since that pardon? I don't think there has been. Not that I can think of. Yeah, I, you I, think, know, I think it's mostly transactional. I think it was sort of a quid. It was, uh, you know, Trump did this and, and that was good enough for me. And I don't think, you know, Snoop is, um, is a great uh, phil philosopher or political scientist. Um, <laughs> he's an unbelievably gifted rapper, or at least was. I mean, he's obviously old as hell now. He's, he's like your age. He is. I like my age. Yeah. I, it's, pardon me. Old as heck. Yeah. <laughs> All works. Um, uh, we're talking about a man who likes to smoke. Well, he does. I don't think that helps his his uh, his health and well being. But yeah, I, all I could say is that um, the Kanye thing obviously got kind of weird with all with his sort of implosion, and it, I assume it probably is related to mental health stuff, and maybe it was a attention stunt that got way out of hand or maybe he just is a viral anti-semi i mean a, a viral anti-semi i don't know i don't know what happened with kanye but he obviously imploded and and is effectively canceled at this point but i think that you will see a few i don't think it'll be a ton but i think you'll see a few leading personas in the in the black community that uh do not jump on the bandwagon of hating on trump and uh, it may move the needle marginally. Um, I, I've never bought this idea that he's about to get 20% of the vote, but I don't think people realize the difference between going from 6% to 8%. You know, it's a, in, in certain counties or states that are, are in the electoral college, that could move the needle. We'll see. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people. Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. So, uh, in other news, we had uh, Vice President Kamala Harris showing up in Northern California for a bunch of rallies, each one of which was reportedly broken up by demonstrators who were shouting genocide and ceasefire and then were shouted down in turn by others in the audience for more years. Uh, so, here's from the uh, Sacramento Bee's Genevieve Hatch. So, sorry, guys. That's terrible. We got to turn my phone off. Didn't um, hear it. 
So here's from Sacramento Bee's Gen- Oh, good. Genevieve Hatch. She reports that Harris had to deal with these protesters. She writes, in Sacramento, a small group chanted outside the Leland Stanford mansion near the Capitol, where she spoke to legislators in San Jose. The protesters took their fight a step further, interrupting Harris's conversation with actress and Democratic activist Sophia Bush multiple times in 30 minutes uh, at East San Jose's Mexican Heritage Plaza Theater. Harris had come to talk about the Biden administration's social justice and abortion rights wins, but the protesters literally said none of that matters. Uh, the B quotes a member of the Santa Clara County Democratic Central Committee calling Harris's campaign hypocritical. Quote, so I felt compelled to take this opportunity to get the message across directly to the VP that we must not facilitate genocide to do so otherwise is anti-woman, anti-child, and counter to Democratic values and the wishes of most Democratic voters. Um, so it's, you know, kind of lovely that uh, in a lovely synthesis of the messaging from the the Biden campaign, uh, you know, it's now from Me Too to Kill the Jews, I guess. Another person said she wanted to tell Harris directly to her face, trust women and call for a ceasefire. Mm. <laughs> We, we, you know we I mean? chart this. Sorry. Yeah. Well, what do you say, David? We chart this, you know, only because, uh, you know, Kamala Harris is from California and has, I think, really infected the Biden campaign, uh, afflicted and infected, just unable to really find her traction. I ran into some Democratic activists the other uh, the other night at a uh, family party. And they told me, nope, Kamala Harris is brilliant. And the only reason people like you don't like her is because she's black and she's a woman. Mm. Um, I really don't have a whole lot to say to that. It's absurd. Um, but the, I don't know how this plays out for the Democrats. Whenever uh, someone says to me, the only reason you don't like her is because she's black and a woman. I always say I couldn't care less that she's black. <laughs> <laughs> is Mrs. Bonson listening? <laughs> uh, I think I'm funny. I think um, she understands. But you're right though, you don't respond <laughs> to it. I mean, you can't you can't touch that kind of that kind of nonsense and and race baiting and 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 it's obviously a really uh, illogical conclusion and and I think it's too bad that the nature of identity politics has led us to a place where um for some reason they can hate Clarence Thomas and um it, it, and and treat him as if he's not black. Say that kind of Uncle Tom type language, mm-hmm. just simply because he has a political philosophy different than theirs. And then when I critique the political philosophy of someone like Kamala Harris, they say I hate her because she's a a black woman. It's it's ridiculous. But let's just be very honest here. The people who should be most concerned about Kamala Harris are not you and me. I believe that she is net negative to the Democrat Party prospects, and she's my hedge. Um, I think that if Trump loses the election, I don't think Joe Biden's making it a full term, um, and health and well-being. And I'm not even necessarily referring to mortality, although that's obviously on the table as well in your mid-80s. But if Kamala Harris um, is the president for one to three years, and Trump can't run again, that's an ideal scenario for me in 2028. Okay? I believe believe in the American um, Republic enough to say that I don't think the country can be ruined in one to three years, and I believe that she will be so repugnant and so incompetent to so many 
obviously on the Republican side and in the independent and moderate uh, side, and even a certain portion of those in the Democrat Party, that um, I think it would create an opportunity for the right to actually nominate and run a phenomenal 2028 presidential candidate. So whatever happens, happens. I can't control it. I didn't get my say of the nominee for 24. Uh, perhaps, as we've talked about, Trump does end up winning. But um, if, if Kamala were to become president, I, I'm fairly confident we'd be talking about a fragment of one term. Call it a Gerald Ford situation. Well, the Newsom. I mean, those DeSantis. clips will of her inability to get a sentence out. I, I, I like the fact that she's um, just she's an opportunist who I don't think believes in much. And when she's pretending to believe in something, it's generally in line with pro woke progressive ideology. All of those things are big negatives, but I mean, her penchant for just BSing. And 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 becoming this incoherent um, babbler is is really bizarre. Well, and and you you made a point that I actually did make. You know, I say I don't know what to say to people who love Kamala Harris, but I tell them you don't have to worry about me. I, I'm not your audience. Your your audience is Democrats who don't like her, like the Democrats up in the in Northern California who showed up and shouted her down and told her, you know, basically you guys are carrying out genocide. Um, progressives who hate her because she was a prosecutor who went, you know, really hard after weed users and then later bragged, of course, famously during her erstwhile presidential campaign that she had smoked weed with, I can't remember who the rapper was. Do you remember who she said she was? Oh, what well, was it with, 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 with listening to? Was it, yeah, she listening said, to Tupac. Yeah. I don't think she did. Yeah. What a shock. Um, hey, the Newsom DeSantis trolling continued last week with uh, Ron DeSantis saying that he will be happy, he says, to send his state's National Guard troops to California to curb illegal immigration. Uh, he This came up in an interview with uh, Sean Hannity on Fox News uh, Thursday of last week. And it came up because DeSantis has actually sent, I believe, a thousand Florida National Guardsmen to the Texas border to help Texas National Guardsmen guard that uh, border with Mexico. He said, uh, DeSantis did, if California actually wants to stop people coming across the border, I'm happy to send troops to California because ultimately I want the whole border secure. Texas is just the first step. We need all states to have secure borders. So, um, you know, this comes, of course, uh, before uh, for Ron DeSantis and Sean Hannity, the uh, details of the immigration bill were leaked out yesterday, not leaked out, but uh, came out yesterday, Sunday, and um I don't know, David, have you had a chance to look over the details? My own sense is there wasn't really much there for conservatives who want border control. But then I read other people, David Frum among them, who really think that this is a terrific deal. Oh, um, what a shock. Yeah. David Frum, a guy who would, I think, probably in his heart, love to see Joe Biden win, thinks Joe Biden's pretty great. I don't know. You don't think so? I thought he was... Well, uh, not in his heart. He says it explicitly. He says oh, it's okay. our patriotic <laughs> duty to get Joe Biden elected. So David Frum is making it very easy for you to, to say that about him. Um, but look, the, the border thing, it's all in the politics. There's no, none of this stuff is substance. None of it's real. And and I, I think the Republicans got caught playing some games. Um, I think that this might 
uh, on the margin accrue a little bit to the benefit of the Democrats politically, but not really. Um, basically, it all comes down to your priors. You know, if you hated the Republicans, then you're a Democrat saying, uh, how could the Republicans say they want to protect the border and then not do this just because they're worried it's going to help Biden and Trump told him not to. And I don't think anyone will buy that apart from people already were probably predisposed that way anyways. And then on the other side, I mean, the, the Republicans have certainly said a lot of things in the last 12 hours that were not true. Um, but again, you, you're not going to get the votes in the House. I doubt it gets out of the Senate. They, they probably thought they would get exactly 60 votes. Um, but, you know, if they lose one or two Democrats, they're not going to get 12 Republican senators. I'm not even sure if they're going to get 10. So it probably doesn't get out of the Senate and it's certainly not going to get out of the House. So it's just a big waste of time. Well, that uh, means I can just throw to the floor here my pages and pages of notes on the details of the deal. So let's move on to uh, burritos and Big Macs are going to cost more in California. That's the Wall Street Journal. David, you and I have been talking about the hangover from this and predicting that it was then called Assembly Bill 257. Uh, long story short, uh, Assembly Bill 257 would have given fast food workers not just a pay hike upwards of 20 to $23 per hour, but also would have created a government union for them just for fast food workers, which would have been monitored by a quote unquote fast food council. Um, the council went away. The pay hike stayed when super chains got together with the governor and cut a deal to get rid of those, the, that, that fast food workers union in exchange for the pay hike. But the pay hike, you and I predicted, would lead, of course, to job cuts um, because, you know, the money's got to come from somewhere if you're going to pay people. If you're in a razor-thin margin business like fast food where you're making literally just cents on each transaction, then you're, you are you really can't afford just to absorb a 25% pay hike. It went from 16 bucks to 20 as a result of the deal that Newsom created. But now all the financial analysts are coming out from these companies or the financial officers are coming out from all of these companies. Uh, I've got so far, let's see, um, Chipotle, uh, McDonald's, Starbucks, Taco Bell, Shake Shack, KFC, Jack in the Box, Taco Bell, all announcing that they're going to increase menu prices, increase automation. They're going to use a lot of um, a lot of technology, sort of ATM style kiosks for ordering. We've all seen some of those. There's going to be more of them. So we're looking at job losses primarily uh, in this instance, uh, maybe even some store closures. Um, the guy from McDonald's, that's Jack Hartung. I call him a guy. He's the CFO for uh, Chipotle. I'm sorry, not McDonald's. Um, he said everyone is going to have to pay more for this. McDonald's announced that they believe the wage hike will cost each one of their California stores a quarter of a million dollars per year. So you can see that, you know, when you, when you put Democrats in charge of the economy and they decide they're going to tell business what to do, the rest of us are going to pay more, get less. Um, job losses, food deserts, corporate concentration, all of these unintended but absolutely predictable costs to the general public. Well, you're exactly right. It's uh, these unintended consequences we talk about all the time. This one seems easier than most to have forecasted. And I, I mean, I, I think we've really covered this quite well and proven prescient time and time again. David, um, I want to talk about the 
California ballot for March uh, coming up here. You and I were trading texts over the last several days. And in one of them, you said, wait a minute, there's just one proposition on the ballot this year. Yeah, uh, this March. And it is a shock. I, I was surprised as well when that turned out to be the case. And of course, we now know that Gavin Newsom really pushed the state legislature to make sure that any additional uh, statewide ballot propositions would be pushed to November so that he could have a clear field in which to run Proposition 1. And the uh, proposal uh, that Newsom is making in Proposition 1 would authorize $6.38 billion, about $6.4 billion in general obligation bonds for the construction of mental health treatment facilities and pay for housing for California's burgeoning homeless population. It would do two things, David, uh, both of them centralizing government authority in Sacramento. Um, it would reform a 2020. This is a minor point, but it's kind of important to watch the bait and switch here. In 2024, we were all sold a millionaire's tax that was supposed to eliminate homelessness and mental illness by soaking the rich. Newsom wants all the money from that um, to now go that was has been going to the counties. Newsom wants it up in Sacramento where he can actually and the legislature can determine where that money should go. It had been going, as I say, to each of California's 58 counties. Now it will go direct, no stops, to uh, Sacramento. More importantly, it's going to issue this nearly $7 billion bond to produce just about 11,500 new beds for rehab and for homeless people. 11,500. We have a homeless population estimated now, David, at uh, 170. 170000 so that's a cost of about $600,000 per bed to serve our current homeless population, and it's not going to do that. It, as I say, it's just 11,500 people, So, um, and it's also because it's a general obligation bond. It takes cash out of the general operating budget, so that's billions of dollars that have to be paid back in principal and interest over 30 years. Um, the estimate is that's $310 million per year for 30 years. That doesn't sound like a lot when you talk about a massive budget, but over 30 years, it adds up. Well, it sure does. And I really encourage people to read the weeds of this. I read the whole measure over the weekend. It's a stunningly bad bill. It's everything you would kind of want to see in a bond bill you want to criticize. Um, it is general obligation. It is a very, very low benefit in their rosy projections relative to the very, very high cost. It's unaffordable, it's unnecessary, and it is rooted in the explicit desire to centralize services for mental health out of local city, county, and into greater Sacramento. That's their language, that's their intention. And if you believe in any concept of subsidiarity, which, by the way, I believe in as a universal principle, but I really believe in it when it comes to addressing issues of mental health that is often particularly almost not all, all, always, but very often um, accompanied by something dealing with drug and alcohol abuse. The idea of Sacramento calling the shots versus local on the ground management stewardship and and facilities and whatnot is insane the amount of money it costs for them to do it invites significant amount of wasted revenues um, and then it puts the taxpayers in all cities of california on the hook when it will not impact all cities and that's the point of a general obligation so this is a bad bond all the way through and i hope the voters will reject it 
In other news here, David, we've got uh, California lawmakers. Here's the headline from the Sacramento Bee. California lawmakers unveil sweeping legislative proposals aimed at slavery reparations. Uh, keep in mind that at first it was going to we were hearing numbers like, you know, one point two million dollars per descendant of an of an African slave who lives in California can establish residency. And slowly over time, David, that was that polled so badly that the backers of reparations, including Gavin Newsom himself, came out with a new argument. They said, oh, please, please, please. You people who are trying to make it all about the money, it's never been about the money. It's only right. been about getting an apology and kind of offering some reform around the edges so these California lawmakers have pushed. Well, out can I interrupt? A, I just want to please. say that to me is the first time I realized what a racist Gavin Newsom was. Easy <laughs> for him to say it's not about the money. Did he come <laughs> from from ancestors? Were his was he an ancestor of slaves? No, or he is not a descendant of terrible slaves. You know, descendant. I mean? Yeah, descendant of slaves. Thank you. Yeah, I think that um that that is supposed to be the line that uh, a white conservative says this is not about the money and that then someone like gavin is supposed to yell at us and say how dare you of course it's about the money so for him to now say it i don't view it as hypocrisy and i don't view it as him seeing the light because he hasn't seen the light i only can possibly interpret it as rabid racism <laughs> <laughs> or Gavin Newsom's ability to add, despite his uh, self-proclaimed uh, dislexia, uh, you know, he confronts the $68 billion budget deficit and has raided the state's rainy day reserve to pay for it, has cut nearly $9 billion in climate change initiatives and uh, reduced housing programs uh, of the sort that are supposed to help the homeless by $1.2 billion. So, you know, take your money out of one pocket, David, put it into another. Uh, these new policy changes are now recommended in that context. There's just no more money. This guy has gone on a spending spree for five years. Gavin Newsom has in the state legislature. So now it's reduced to just a few items. I'll tick them off for you, David. One is a formal apology for, quote, human rights violations and crimes against humanity on African slaves and their descendants. Who so gives California the, who gives the apology. Uh, it's supposed to come from the state. It is not specific, but it sounds like it's supposed to be the governor. Oh, so um, he's going to apologize. He's supposed to apologize on behalf of all Californians, uh, you know, 40 million of us nearly, uh, for crimes against African-Americans in a state that was never a slave state. But, uh, you know, we've been over that territory before, and it still lives on the left as a truism that Californians were running around like, I don't know, the Klan or something like that. Um and in fact, California has been a very progressive state with regard to race relations and people have come here from all over the South to escape Jim Crow and they have found a way to make new lives for themselves. Even in the 1850s, there was there was real prosperity for black people in California. Well, I think that um, Gavin should make the apology and then I would like to record it and then I'd like him to be canceled. Because if there's one thing I've learned in the last few years is that somebody apologizing for something awful they did doesn't bring them back into society. And if Gavin is going to go and say, I'm sorry for all the racist stuff, then I would say like, well, that's fine, but you're, you're out. I mean, now if he doesn't ever say it, I guess we don't know what to really do, but that's an odd thing to me. Um, the notion of somebody who is saying, I didn't do anything racist. I am going to apologize. 
And then I guess he's either apologizing because he feels that he is system systemically responsible or he's apologizing on behalf of other people that he doesn't represent. And, and so wh who out there, I'd be curious though, in the African-American community, who feels good about getting an apology from someone who's saying as a precondition of their apology, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I'm speaking for other people who have not approved me speaking for them. Yeah. I'd like to apologize for Adolf Hitler. I didn't round up and kill murder Jews, but I'm going to apologize on his behalf because I know he like, would. Even that, which is obviously like the events of that were, you know, 75 years after the Civil War and over 100 years after the the slave trade was bringing people into America. Well, far more than that, but it took place over such a long period of time. You see my point. I um I've never even understood Germans that were apologizing for Hitler that were not remotely connected to his atrocities. Um, this, this, I don't know. I guess I just feel very strongly about repentance, that you should be truly sorry for the things you do wrong. And when you say you're sorry, you should mean it. But you should really be apologizing for things that, A, you did wrong, and B, things you think were wrong. Mm -hmm. But Gavin, yeah, Newsom is, Gavin Newsom is offering to apologize on behalf of people that didn't do it and that he doesn't think he did anything wrong. I just don't yeah. understand who in the world is moved by this. It is it, it is beyond absurd and even frustrating. You know, I, yeah, I think you're right. But, you know, maybe his apology will consider these other items. He could say, look, we can't give you any money because, you know, look at our pockets. They're turned out like rabbit ears now. But he can say that we have... This is this is what Newsom does best is to acknowledge finally a problem, even a phony problem like this one, and then to say, I've got plans. You know, he may have created a problem, but now he's got plans to deal with that. We're going to come and talk about crime here in just a moment. Um, speaking of uh, issues that Gavin Newsom brought on himself, but he can offer in that apology the evidence that we are working now on regulatory reform because one of the bills would ban hair discrimination in sports would create a grant program that increases high school and college enrollment in STEM-related programs, would prohibit book bans in prison without review and oversight from the state's correctional facilities. Mm. I would hope that the state's prisons and correctional facilities in general are already overseeing what's in their book, in their libraries, but what do I know? Um, they propose a state-funded grant program to decrease community violence in black neighborhoods and requiring advanced notification about grocery store closures in underserved and at-risk communities. Um, each one of these, David, strikes me as just kind of absurd. Like, I didn't know that hair discrimination in sports was a thing, except that my high school coaches most certainly discriminated against all hair. They wanted every one of us shaved down to the nubbins. Um the, the just, you know, declaring that you're going to have uh, increases in high school and college enrollment and STEM related programs assumes that our K-12 schools and our colleges are actually doing a good job of training young people to be qualified for STEM programs. My guess is this will be like Stalin's five year plan to improve wheat uh, production. It'll be utterly failed, but uh, we'll make up for it by just promoting people who ought not to be in these classes and then make excuses, uh, probably declare racism when they fail. Um, but the most interesting ones here are about decreasing community violence in black neighborhoods, because that's likely to run into our friends in the Reparations Commission, who really have said already that they believe that, you know, the conventional law and order for public safety, that is 
find people who commit crimes and punish them, that that's bad because it will fall necessarily, they believe, on black people. Uh, so I don't know how you preserve community safety while you don't lock up bad people in the community. Um, that seems a problem to me. And then also this advanced notification of grocery store closures. But what are they What are they saying the money goes to? Because you're right, they are saying this. So what does it go to if it doesn't go for more enforcement of law and order? Um, it goes to early intervention and training police not to hurt people when they arrest them. Uh, the Right now, it looks like one of those But I bills, mean, I don't think that's literally what it goes to. Like, is that what they've said? It's going to go to early prevention? Early intervention into at-risk children. So this is like uh, the D.A.R.E. program uh, okay. of your youth all right, all right, all right. and my children's youth. Yeah, um, well, but that worked. I, I, I mean, they at least they freaking killed drug abuse, you know? Yeah, they, <laughs> they got rid of it. I mean, it's funny. Us conservatives sit around a lot and talk about failed government programs. But that's one thing you got to hand it to them. But all those efforts to get rid of drugs, they, they nailed that, man. <laughs> haven't seen fentanyl anywhere. Um, but this I idea know better, I would say that the just say no program and the dare programs of the eighties were literal commercials for drugs. Oh, they were, there were countless studies. I used to debate the people who ran those programs on, you know, KPCC or uh, KCRW when I was on radio shows there as a lefty and as a lefty, I was absolutely for, you know, people really being modest in their uh, prudent. What's the word I'm looking for in their use judicious in their use of alcohol um, and moderate. to avoid moderate. Thank you. They would just moderate their, you know, enjoy modestly and moderately their, their use of alcohol. Um, and then, you know, the research started coming out that when you talk a lot to little kids about drugs, it turns out that more of them use drugs and alcohol. Kids who graduated from D.A.R.E. programs in the 80s and 90s were more likely than the control group of kids who did not participate in those programs to use drugs and alcohol. Um, well, the thing is, is that even if they didn't fully get it right on the prevention side with child education, what they did do as a government program is they freaking cut off the supply of drugs coming in from Central America. Yeah. Right? Didn't they get that part right? They got that totally right. Okay, good. Yeah, that's all so done So even now. if a kid goes through D.A.R.E. and somehow comes out of it still wanting to do cocaine, they're not going to be able to find any. No, there's no cocaine anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Um, here's one of my favorite stories, David. We've talked about this program a couple of times. The California Public Utilities Commission acting on legislation that Gavin Newsom signed came out uh, last year with a report uh, announcing that they were going to initiate a new income-based electricity usage payment. Yeah. That is to say that, uh, you know, if you're rich, you're going to pay more. And if you're poor, you're going to pay less. Um, now, apparently, that bill is polling so badly. I shouldn't say that bill, that that move of the CPU, uh, of the California Public Utilities Commission is polling so badly that uh, the governor has urged lawmakers to roll it back. So a group of Democratic state lawmakers last week, one week ago, announced an effort to roll back the rule that requires the state's, ma state's major utility companies to set all electricity and gas rates based on customer income instead of energy use. That's from Ashley Zavala of KCRA. Um, 20, uh, the, the, the logic they're using, the lawmakers, isn't that this was a bad idea that they that uh, came through here, that, you know, this is part of that reparations sort of agenda, that 
poor people tend to be people of color. And therefore, if you give poor people a break on their utility bills, it's going to necessarily help uh, people of color. So our friends on the left like to refer to them. And um, so Newsom's goal in signing this was twofold. He wanted to achieve a social justice win by cutting um, power bills for low-income consumers and then claim that it would also achieve a climate goal, that it was to encourage these low-income Californians to plug in their new electric vehicles without the fear of its impact on the uh, on their bills. Um, you get the picture, I think. But, I um the blowback was so terrible. Newsom but it is sounds now- like the blowback was because of process that they were trying to exercise a loophole to fast track it. And they decided the backlash was because they were trying to fast track it and it needed more public discussion. Uh, what is their substantive opposition? I know what my substantive opposition is, but what's the substantive opposition that is killing this thing? Well, the substance of opposition is that lots of people who are middle income are being treated as wealthy and would see their power bills go up by as much as $1,500 per year. So that started to come out. But you're right, David. What you're saying is math. The math is over. Yes, but that's not what the lawmakers are saying. They're saying what you just said they're saying. That is the, the, the lawmakers are saying, oh, wait a minute. This didn't get enough of a hearing. At the time, because it was snuck into what's called a trailer bill. That's um, what would you call that? A kind of a legislative garbage barge. You know, it's like, oh, my God, the deadline is coming and we have all these things we want to get through, but didn't have time for hearings, didn't have time to actually write the bills. So let's just cram them in at this into this last minute bill packed with a random wish list of other crazy things including this provision that was lost on most lawmakers, but was close to Gavin Newsom's heart. That is income linked power bills. So uh, I'm I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would put my money on the fact that this thing dies an ignominious death in the state legislature and we never hear of its kind for a month. Um, Yeah. And I think, by the way, those of us on the right should be encouraged by that because there are certain awful ideas that don't really go away. But th- let's not kid ourselves. Sometimes they push too far and we win. And and that needs to be remembered. It's happened several times since you and I started this podcast. The thing I would just point out, though, before one thinks about the merits of income-based electricity bills, which, by the way, I'd be curious how super... So white kids from super rich families that go out on their own and they don't have any disposable income yet, I assume they're getting a free ride too, right? Uh, perhaps, but not. Why wouldn't they? Low income is low income. Well, I suppose, I guess if you, part of the problem was in the mechanisms for determining who is rich in California. So a kid who is. What they did throughout COVID for anything that required quick income validation was this Orwellian thing of being able to tie it into immediate tax return. Yes. And that's what they wanted to do here. Yeah. But how many kids show on a tax return, something between five and nineteen thousand dollars while they're you know in a band or something but they live under mommy and daddy's uh i think there's a lot of kids in that i mean you could think of like the quote-unquote 90210 kind of kids Mm. i would love to see i would love to see a lower electricity bill for rich kids from beverly hills that don't show a lot of income i think it would be awesome yeah, so I thought I thought you were talking about kids who might be in college, for instance, but still on their parents' tax bill. You know, oh, but dependent. even out of college. 
Yeah, no, I, you're right. When you're out of college and you're not making a lot of money, you're doing what I was doing. I was married by the time I, you know, I get out of college and I go to grad school, and I didn't have a lot of money. This, no. you know, this might have been an, uh, a benefit to me. Well, um, I don't want to just sit here and be sarcastic. I do want to point out a funny thing. Uh, not a funny thing, an important thing. Um, philosophically, when you know, my last book was called uh, "There's No Free Lunch," and it, you and I talk all the time about trade-offs. This quote from Alex Stack, who's the spokesman at Gavin's office, says everything you need to know. California must combat climate change by rapidly expanding the use of clean electricity in our vehicles and buildings, and at the same time, make it more affordable for low-income Californians. This kind of fantasy land um, that denies trade-offs that we're going to have climate change go away we're going to have clean electricity we're going to get it uh, uh rapidly somehow we're going to make this all happen quickly and we're going to do it in a way it costs less money this is the thing that people need to realize is the great lie i would be against the policy if they said this is going to cost a lot more money but we really need cleaner energy or if they said we're going to get it a lot cheaper but we're going to have to really, you know, lean into coal a little bit here. We're going to need some dirtier energy. For them to come act as if no trade-offs exist. We want clean, we want quick, and we want cheap. These people are just liars. Well, and, and it's interesting, David. I, I put another story in the show note here for my colleague at CPC, Ed Ring, who writes a lot about energy and water. Uh, just a terrific analyst. And Ed did a quick study uh, for us. Uh, the full study is coming out on Wednesday, but he's already teased it with a piece he calls Reality Check. Half of California's energy comes from crude oil. Uh, but the fact is, is that 82% of our energy, 84 rather, I'm sorry, 84% of our energy in California comes from total fossil fuels. The the delta there is uh, natural gas. So you throw in um, crude oil and you throw in natural gas and California's energy use is 84% fossil fuels. That's after more than a decade of climate change initiatives aimed at trying to get us all to stop using fossil fuels. 84%, David, of all of our energy. And supposedly within this decade, we're going to all be off the off the hose here and no longer smoking crude oil or natural gas. And we're all going to be on this. You, clean are energy. you suggesting that's because the um, an energy technology and energy reality has not moved to a point where we can get less yes. or or would you be willing to acknowledge it's because a lot of people want to destroy the environment i think it's a little of both yeah i i know that I, every time i climb into my car i cross my uh cross myself catholic wise and say thank god i'm going to kill the planet god um that's my stewardship no i think it's, Jordan, it's that Jordan we don't Peterson have actually has an interesting perspective about the one group like i think you know the polling all indicates the top 1% either for virtue signaling, Phariseeism, or out of some sincere conversion. But the top 1% talk a lot about their desire to uh, help the climate. And of course, they're the ones that fly private the most and and so forth. And in my defense, as someone who flies private a lot and, and does different things that may, a lot of people would say they don't agree with, I don't ever claim I'm out here trying to lower my carbon footprint. What I am trying to do is get everyone to wake up and realize that natural gas is a cleaner fuel and it's a choice that we make not to use it. Some of the other cleaner 
by cleaner, I just simply mean a lower emission of carbon. Some of the other options for lower emission of carbon are simply not readily available. Nobody can make that argument for natural gas. It's readily available. So who do you think is doing more to lower carbon emission? Someone like me who does fly private and, and, and you know, uh, have a certain degree of carbon footprint as a heavy traveler and yet is fighting tooth and nail and investing significantly in natural gas or somebody who is also flying private all the time, but then going around talking about how we don't need natural gas and making up this fantasy world. Um, but what I would say about Jordan Peterson is an interesting point I hadn't thought of. The people who care least about climate change are those who are impoverished because it's very difficult to think about saving the planet when you have to worry about where you're going to get lunch. But David, the money doesn't matter. These yeah. these people, they just want to save the planet and they don't care if they have to starve to death doing it. Ed makes a couple of really interesting points. One of them is that California consumes 1.8 million barrels of oil each day but produces, because of voluntary self-restrictions, just 463,000 barrels a day. Uh, Ed points out our oil comes I'm from- shocked. I'm shocked we're producing 463,000. Uh, same here. Uh, I, that's, that's Ed's, that's, that's Ed's um, but what would you say? That's about one-fourth of what we use every day, and we have the capacity. Yeah, but I, but I, I mean, uh, more importantly, I, I think that- um, 463 divided by national daily production. It's still not 4%. Right. That's just, it's, that's just unconscious. Ed's, Ed's point is this, that California could produce its own its own substance. It could produce its own oil, its own natural gas, and be almost autarkic, you know, uh, no longer needing any kind of of imported oil but instead he points out we get our oil a quarter of our oil comes from iraq uh, then in order it's ecuador with about 17 percent, saudi arabia brazil colombia guiana mexico canada and good old kazakhstan um and ed asks like if climate change is really the goal if saving the climate uh and reducing emissions is really the goal we're pushing massive oil tankers all over the globe to bring California oil. Uh, or as Ed puts it, won't our drilling practices here in California be more environmentally responsible than those in foreign countries? And won't it benefit the environment to not have dozens of oil tankers perpetually belching their bunker fuel exhaust off the coast of Long Beach? And that only after they've belched their way across the Pacific. Mm. Um so, you know, Ed's point is the transportation costs of importing oil uh, to, to keep feeding the California beast is also a part of the problem. It's a great article by Ed, by the way. It is. I, I absolutely love it. And uh, I'll be looking for that report on Wednesday. Um, the, the last set of stories I really want to talk about is that, uh, you know, we talked about how you did a moment ago about how we should celebrate the fact that even Democrats, you know, can wake up and do the math. Um, as we have seen in a couple of previous stories here just today, uh, this one is about crime that suddenly Newsom has dropped the argument that he tried to sustain through the first four years of his of his tenure. And even last year, uh, late last year in December, he was still arguing that people who said, you know, California is being swallowed up in crime are, are liars and they're making it up. He asked us not to believe the evidence of our own eyeballs. 
But now suddenly he is tough on crime, Gavin Newsom, uh, initiating a series of um, of initiatives that really look remarkably like he's trying to undo some of the damage he voluntarily created. Let's not forget that while he was uh, lieutenant governor, he went on the campaign trail for Jerry Brown to talk all over the state about the benefits of Prop 47, which famously changed uh, most theft to misdemeanor up to nine hundred and fifty dollars. And I think there's a really interesting point here that Newsom has tried to argue that Prop 47 in in raising the rate of misdemeanor to felony at 950 per uh, per theft. Newsom was trying to argue that 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 hasn't had an impact because other states have even higher thresholds for felony theft. He points out that, you know, we're not we're not even in the top 10. I think we are number 10, perhaps it's like there are nine other states that have higher levels of misdemeanor versus felony convictions. And he points specifically, of course, to Texas, which has a twenty five hundred dollar limit. But Newsom doesn't point out this other thing that is not entirely on him. Um, keep in mind, Prop 47 wasn't his idea. The voters voted, voted for it. Uh, that's on us as voters. But also, we have local prosecutors in California, county prosecutors, county DAs who famously do not prosecute crimes. And among my favorites, of course, is uh, L.A. District Attorney uh, George Gascon, who becomes the L.A. County DA in December of 2020. That's just a few months after George Floyd's summer. And he immediately tells his prosecutors in the L.A. DA's office, to ignore most misdemeanors because of their racial, their diverse racial impact. Um, they follow his orders. His office filed charges in just 43% of misdemeanor cases, uh, theft, misdemeanor thefts, uh, referred to uh, his office by local police. In contrast, Jackie Lacey, who was the DA before Gascon, uh, referred, uh, took on charges, I'm sorry, prosecuted 86%, twice as many misdemeanors as Gascon did. And so when crime spikes under Gascon, he says, whoa, 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 you can't blame this on me. This was boiling for a long time, and my equity and diversity and inclusion policies are going to change everything here. Um, so he says, don't blame me. But now, you know, local police and sheriff's deputies in L.A. County tell victims of misdemeanor property theft don't even bother filing a report if it's a misdemeanor because Gascon's office will not charge and prosecute. They won't do anything. We can refer your, your complaint to that office. We don't have the local capacity to do that. Most cities do not have their own attorneys. They don't have prosecutors. They leave this to the county to handle. And what do you do when the county's not doing its job? It's a little bit like the situation in Texas where Greg Abbott is saying, are we supposed to just allow the border to be ignored because Joe Biden won't do his job? Same thing here with misdemeanor theft, which is just exploding all over California, but particularly in these big DA cities. Uh, Chase Boudin was another one of these guys. Fascinating that uh, Gascon uh, had the same effect on San Francisco. Let's all remember that he was an L.A. I think an LAPD officer for years uh, was present at the signing of the three strikes bill. He was a kind of a tough on crime guy while he was an officer, but then he goes up to San Francisco, runs for DA there and does in San Francisco, what he would do for us down here in Los Angeles. Um, and that is to reduce misdemeanor prosecutions. And uh, let me see, I think, where is this from? I'm so sorry. I don't have my, my citation here. But um, I think this is from the L.A. Times. Car break-ins exploded during Gascon's eight years in office in San Francisco. The city reported more than 31,000 auto burglaries in 2017, the worst year in recorded history, which critics blamed on Gascon, but which Gascon said had nothing to do with him, even though he had refused to prosecute low-level offenders, as he called them. 
So, David, whether it's Prop 47 raising the misdemeanor property crime level to 950 bucks, or it's the failure of these county DAs to take those misdemeanors seriously, we have a problem. We have a, we have a crime problem. Um, and shoplifting has quadrupled since Prop 47 passed. Uh, it has increased 16% while Newsom was governor. Um, and now he's calling for a whole range of initiatives that really do sound like he's suddenly tough on crime. He's going to crack down on professional thieves. Uh, that is increasing felony penalties for people who've escaped on misdemeanor charges in the past. That sounds like he's repealing 47. He's going to increase enforcement tools, he says, by bolstering existing law to ensure the police can, in fact, arrest suspects of retail theft. Suspects, sorry. Um, and he also has this interesting thing. He wants to aggregate uh, the theft amounts. So the idea that people would move from, say, Target to Walgreens in one day and steal 900, but not 950 in each location. Now it's going to be that uh, prosecutors are allowed to aggregate your material theft uh, in a variety Ooh. of different locations. Yeah, so he's that's doing real, he's, that's cracking down. Yeah. So there's the part of me that wants to um, micturate on the governor's political grave here with this, but also want to celebrate somebody who I think is for perhaps mercenary political reasons, trying to reform a system that he helped what would you say yeah no i agree i do think it's a little different category than what, what i had said before like i think you know gavin realizing that slavery reparations are are unfeasible that is a, a rank political movement um which is different than the other category the thing we talked about about realizing that income-based electric bills are a bad idea um i think in this particular case it probably is less ideological and more pragmatic. Um, the great example in our country right now is in with the migrants and and seeing some of the blue state governors that are that were before, you know, patting themselves on the back about sanctuary city status and now are just absolutely fit to be tied with um, what has happened. And so, yeah, reality, you know, what Irving Crystal's famous line, a liberal is a con uh, uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. I think that when it comes to law and order and crime, no pun intended, nothing gets you mugged quicker. Yeah. And in a sense, I should have a pun there because it's pretty clever, but I'm not smart enough to have thought of that ahead of time. Um, they, they got mugged literally and and figuratively. figuratively. But but much like the San Francisco school board issue and so forth, I I am I'm kind of am being a hypocrite here because I'm going back against my own admonition for taking a victory. There are times in which it just feels like token, too little, too late. Um, I think Bonta, it would be more useful in my opinion if he acknowledged a systemic failure rooted in the fundamental flaw of not respecting law and order, not respecting the rule of law, and then stated what we have here now is a burden of figuring out the most effective way to begin enforcing the laws that we have. Yeah, well said. Um, I, I just find, you know, as so much of what comes out of government, at you know, that, that it comes out across purposes. So we've got Newsom and the lawmakers in the state house talking about reparations, and one of those rep reparative acts will be that we will reduce crime in uh, black communities. That that's that's an imperative. We've got to do that. 
And then we come out here and we've got uh, Newsom, you know, really arguing for a pretty tough on crime sort of policy. And yet the reparations people, you know, led by Reggie Jones-Sawyer, the assemblyman and member of the Public Safety Committee, I don't know how they're going to respond to this because their sense, Mia Bonta has already come out and said that this effort on Newsom's part to enhance crime, criminal penalties for crime is going to fall disproportionately upon black and other people of color, she says. How is that not going to resonate with her progressive counterparts, uh, colleagues in the state house. Um, I, I think we're set up for an interesting argument here, but Gavin Newsom is the 800 pound gorilla in the fight and has shown his willingness to reach deep into the state house and slap people around a bit to get them to wake up. So it'd be interesting to watch this one as we go forward, David. Yes, it will be. Anything else you want to talk about my brother? Uh, no, I, uh, I will be deeply teaching, uh, the message of work and the meaning of life, uh, in, in the weeks ahead. So I hope I'm able to catch with you on, uh, catch up with you on a couple of these weeks to, uh, to address our dear friends, uh, who are the listeners of Radio Free California, but I don't even know what state I will be in over the next several weeks. There's a lot of moving and shaking. Uh, trying to preach the good word, my friend. Yeah, and right about the time uh, you probably end your most frantic work, I uh, fly off to Europe to go visit our new grandchild there. I'm pretty thrilled about that. That's kind of the highlight of the season for me. Uh, this week, I'm going to be talking with uh, Charlie Cook down here in Newport Beach. Thanks uh, in part to you, David, for getting yes. us into the Newport Beach Country Club Um Charlie and I do this occasionally where we sit together and talk about our respective states. He's from Florida. I'm, of course, here. And so we'll be doing that on Wednesday. And then on Saturday, I'm speaking to a group of Republicans, I gather. I think it's the Greater Republican Assembly of Long Beach. I'm speaking to them on Saturday about California and what Californians can do. So lots going on down here, too, my friend. You're doing good work. Thank you. And you, too, buddy. Uh, that's all we have today. Thanks for spending your time with us. You can always find Radio Free California on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe. And of course, rate and review the show wherever you do subscribe. That boosts our profile and that helps others find and join this little band of brothers and sisters. Please email us with your comments and story suggestions. You'll find our email addresses and other fun details on the show notes. And you can follow us on Twitter at the Radio Free CA. On behalf of my friend and co-host David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to session producers Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall, and to our friend at National Review Podcast, the producer Sarah Schutte. Thanks also to Metalachi, the LA-based mariachi metal band for our music, La Revolución Continua en la Semana Próxima. 